There is a house in New Orleans They call the rising sun And it's been a ruin of many a poor boy And God, I know I've won And welcome to the show. Vikings get a big time win on Monday night football, 19 to 13 to beat the Chicago Bears for just the fourth time since 2000. That's right, the fourth time since 2000 the Vikings beat the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field and the Vikings now 4 and 5 3 in a row and Kirk Cousins played the best he's played out of this three-game win streak tonight, BG and Zach both calling in tonight. But the best game we've seen Kirk Cousins play on this win streak by far, I mean, he had to be better than he was. In, and it's not like he was bad in the in the last two wins, but he just didn't do much because Dalvin Cook was running all over the field. Yeah, the Bears sold out to stopping the run tonight. They did a very good job of bottling up Cook tonight, uh, and really until Akeem Hicks went out of the game. But up until that point, I mean, Dalvin really had nowhere to run all night long, and it was up uh, to the wide receivers and to Kirk Cousins and, and, and to the line to give Kirk some time to make some throws. He did a good job uh, of getting the ball distributed to different guys. I think it was like seven or eight different receivers caught passes tonight. And, and Justin Jefferson, another big night, Thielen with a great one hand to catch in the end zone and a perfect ball, uh, not a perfect ball, but maybe a, a 95% perfect ball uh, to Thielen. Obviously he had to make the tough one hand to catch if that was high and away. Uh, maybe he doesn't have to make that catch, but a, a really good throw from Kirk Cousins uh, on that play. And he did enough, and the Vikings did just enough, even with the special teams blunders and and Cordero taking one back to the house. And uh, obviously the <clears throat> missed extra point at the end of the game uh, from Austin Cunning uh, on the long snapper on that play. Uh, just a terrible snap. Um, obviously doesn't cost the Vikings anything in this one. It cost me my fantasy game uh, this week because of that one point that Dan Bailey would have got from the extra point. Cost me my fantasy game. But I'm not too upset because the Vikings won. Uh, Yeah, BG, uh, Zach, what do you guys think uh, about this 1913 Vikings win? Yeah, just speaking of fantasy implications, it was was huge for me, and I'm sorry to hear that the extra point screwed you, but going into the night I was down two, going up against Cook, and I had Thielen. So thank God Thielen with those two touchdown grabs, that first one, like you said, a great grab, a good throw, and good defense. But Kirk Cousins, he played a very good game. Um, one of those games where we needed Kirk Cousins to win, and everybody else who's not a Vikings fan is talking about how he's not that guy and how he can't be that guy on Monday night football or against a good defense. And he ran into a good defense on Monday night football and carried us for the win. Delvin Cook ended up with 96 yards, pretty good, but on 30 carries, which <laughs> – is not the best yards per carry. So we, I mean, we had an even uh, offensive attack with Cook in near 100 yards once again this week, and Cousins v- being very accurate and efficient, finishing with two touchdowns and one interception. That was not his fault. So anytime you go into Soldier Field and come away with a win, we know as a Vikings fan, as you were saying, four wins in the past 20 years in Soldier Field. You've got to walk away feeling really good about that W, even though I thought we played pretty sloppy at points, turning over the ball and playing absolutely horrendous on special teams. 
with the Patterson return. Um, and with the, I think it was, don't know if it was Anthony Miller or Mooney who their punt returner is, but just a lot of yards on yeah. almost every punt they had. Yeah, it was Miller that he came in after oh, the, and, the moft, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I think the Vikings, other than that, on offense and especially defense, looked really good uh, tonight. And again, I think that might have been one of the worst offenses I've ever seen in my life, that Chicago Bears offense. Absolutely brutal. I know that in the third quarter they had 15 yards, and I think in the second half probably finished around 30 yards. Mm-hmm. Without that Patterson touchdown, they're a, a field goal kicking team. Absolutely brutal. But the Vikings capitalized that and, and played well. So I'm very happy that the Vikings got a much needed win going to four and five, three in a row now, and put ourselves in a situation with three easy games the next three weeks to potentially make the playoffs and don't know if we can control our destiny at this point, but we're put ourselves in a situation where we can almost say that now. I mean, I, I think you, you certainly can say you can control your own destiny. I mean, we've gone through uh, the remaining schedule of the Vikings now with seven games left uh, with those two tough ones being the Bucks and the Saints. But if you get to, uh, I mean, if they win out from here, that's you're in the playoffs for sure. I mean, the number in my mind is nine. And if you get to that nine win mark, uh, I think you got a great chance. Now with four wins, you're five away with seven games left. You win five out of your last seven, six out of your last eight before this week, like we talked about. I mean, I think in my mind they control their own destiny, but with two really tough teams and maybe the two best teams in the NFC with the Saints and the Bucks, uh, you're right. It is going to be a tough road to, to still get to the playoffs. Yeah, and and I just say that it, I don't know if we can fully control our own destiny now with this past weekend, the teams above us in the NFC did us no favor with who we needed to lose wins, um, ended up winning. So mm-hmm. I know the Saints, or not the Saints, the Rams, the Cardinals, and Seahawks all sit at 6-3. and three. Uh, Those are the last three teams in the wild card. So we're, we're going to need some help from those guys mm-hmm. um, to get in with a 9-7 and seven record if we do finish 9-7. and seven. But, I mean... I think we've shown it with the Seahawks, with the Titans. We can beat anybody in the league if we play well. And New Orleans Saints might be without Drew Brees when we play him, and that is right. huge for us. Yep. They do have a, probably one of the best backups in NFL with Winston, but he's nowhere near uh, nowhere near Brees. And we're already looking at the Saints game like we do getting ahead of ourselves. But if we take it one week at a time and continue with the balanced offensive approach that we've had, in the past two weeks, the defense have shown or have improved by great strides um, against this shitty Chicago offense. But the week before, um, played really well too. So we're getting better each week, and that's all we can ask for. Mm-hmm. The only rebuttal I'll have to your NFC West uh, comment is they're going to have to start playing each other. Yeah, there is three teams in the NFC West that are six and three, but now they're going to have to start playing each other with the season running out and you have to get two divisional games against everyone. Uh, so those teams are going to have to start playing each other head to head where there won't be getting, both of them won't be getting wins or all three of those teams won't be getting wins where it'll be one win and one team loses every week. So I, I think you're right. BG is there is some concern, but I don't think there's going to be two wildcard teams out of the NFC West. I think one out of the West, uh, one out of the South and one out of the North. And I think the Vikings are in prime position uh, to get that maybe third wildcard spot out of the NFC North. Zach, any thoughts on the 13-19 Vikings win? Um, Yeah, we, we were talking a little bit before, kind of upset. Not upset. It was just we, there were some bad calls in that game, and it was, the, it was cool the refs were letting them play yep. for the most part. 
but the Bears were just prima donnas out there. My God, like they got a, the toughest defense in the league, but they're the biggest bunch of bitches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> like, it's just like what? I don't, I don't get it, man. Like there were two of those calls were not holding calls. Yep. And they're both on Khalil Mack, and he just yeah, exactly. completely flops on him, and he gets the call because he's the best linebacker in the game. But you're yeah. completely right. And then, he, and then he hears Steve Levy like, "Look at that! You can't, you can't do any better than Mack's doing." And then a way to a way to justify how good he's doing: two big holding calls, one that took back a a run from a run from Cook. Like, that's that's his; those are his credentials for the game. He drew two holding calls that weren't even supposed to be holding. Right. Like, dude, I, I think I think we did pretty well to. to I mean, he did, he had a pretty good game, but I think our offensive line gave him some credit. Yeah, did pretty well. Um, and Rudolph, like I said, on that one play, that was just egregiously not a holding call. <laughs> I don't know how to yeah. say it? <laughs> so dumb. I mean, they they uh, highlighted that one on the broadcast, but the one I thought was even more egregious was the one they call on Tyler Conklin. I I think it was Conklin. Uh, it could have been Reef too, but uh, yeah, it was there was a, the second one was even worse. I mean, it wasn't even close to a hold. I mean, you could call that on every single play. I know that's a, they always say uh, that's a cliche thing to say about holding calls, but seriously, you can't. I mean, that is a terrible, terrible call. And if it's not Khalil Mack, if it's anyone else in the league, uh, they're not getting that call. No, and, and the I, first I, I, one, absolutely. The first one when he spins. I mean, they pointed out in the broadcast as well that. When you spin, you're clearly trying to just—it's a flop, basically, for football. You know, you're spinning out of there because you have no chance to make the play. You're out of position, and you're trying to draw a call. It's exactly what he did. I mean, it's the right play if you're in his position. You're out of position. You're, you're trying to get a call. He did it, and credit to him on getting the call. But from an officiating standpoint, I mean, that's horrible. That, that is a dog shit call. Uh, a massive play of the game. I mean, the Vikings did come back right after that and hit Justin Jefferson for 30-some yards down the field. Uh, so it didn't really make that big of a difference. We didn't score on that drive anyway. But still, I mean, that could have been a massive, massive play in that game. And I thought the officiating, I mean, it wasn't that bad tonight, but there was a few few calls where you're just scratching your head. Like, yeah, there was only six flags, but three of them were like, what? What? Exactly. Yeah, it was almost like they were looking me? to throw them. Exactly. Yeah. And they did miss some stuff with the, uh, the, the hand to the helmet on – Nick Foles there in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, for the most part, I, I thought it was slanted toward uh, the Bears. And I thought the same thing with the broadcast. I mean, my goodness, Dude, ESPN, yeah. with the amount of money they have in the primetime spot that they're given by the NFL on Monday Night Football, how can you not put a broadcast booth together? I mean, it's been years since ESPN has even had a middle of the row. I mean, you're talking games on CBS on noon and on Fox that, in my opinion, have better broadcast teams than the primetime. I mean, ESPN gets one game a week. They get one game, Monday Night Football. They only have to put out one play-by-play guy and one color guy. They put out a play-by-play guy, two color guys, a whole bunch of people on the sidelines, and they they suck. Every year they suck. Steve Levy, I, I don't really know the guy. I don't know much about him. He was terrible tonight. From a He's broadcaster's a perspective, he was an absolute joke. On Monday Night Football, when you're mispronouncing and misidentifying player after player on sacks and hits <laughs> the quarterback, I mean, it was five or six times where I'm like, he's saying Roquan Smith and Danny Trevathan, like, Shamar interchangeably. Shamar, Shamir, he said Shamir Stefan. I mean, you I think got, he said Everson Smith. You got Everson all Smith instead of Harrison. Week, you got one job, dude. All week, you're getting ready for the Monday Night Football game that you call one game a week, 
And all week you get ready with the players, pronunciation of the names, the numbers. I get it, Roquan Smith and Danny Trevathan, 90, or uh, I think it was 58 and 59. I get their one number away. And, but he interchangeably used those guys' names like four or five times tonight. On big plays, too. Like on a play when Roquan Smith sacked the quarterback and Danny Trevathan is nowhere near. I mean, he, he didn't even touch Kirk Cousins. And he's saying, oh, Danny Trevathan with the sack. And Roquan Smith also on the play. No, no. Roquan Smith with the sack. <laughs> Danny Trevathan might have touched Kirk Cousins once he had hit the ground. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was just because the game wasn't, you know, a dominant blowout win for the Vikings and I was just kind of, you know, nitpicking on little things. But I thought the broadcast was terrible. I, I thought there even the graphics, like why were they hating on the, uh, on the Vikings so much in the, the ESPN graphics booth? They had that one graphic where all the Vikings players were like scared in the jungle, like hiding in the jungle, like really scared by all the bears oh, coming dude. around. They've got the cheesiest freaking graphics ever. What do they do? What do they think? We're a bunch of kids watching this show? Like, I don't know. Well, I don't and they make all, all the players animated. Yeah, it's so stupid. It's so dumb. It is so stupid. I mean, and then they have that graphic where you got all the quarterbacks and Kirk Cousins is like breaking the TV where it says like 0-9 on there. And like, I don't know. Everything from the ESPN side, from the broadcast side, seemed like they were just skewed uh, to the Bears tonight. It all went south once they got rid of the booger mobile. <laughs> Come to think of it. Yeah. I and mean, in his hot takes. <laughs> oh my gosh, they were hot. Yeah. I love that. I don't know how they, I mean, they offered Peyton Manning all the money in the world. They can't get him to come uh, oh, be the be color so guy. Cool. But I, I don't know how they can't get one guy to call play by play. I mean, I, I thought Sean McDonough was really good a couple of years ago, uh, but he was just plagued by Booger McFarland. I mean, he did two years, I, I think, on Monday Night Football. And he had Booker McFarlane and Jace Witten just fighting with each other. Uh, so they replace the whole booth. And they come back with Steve Levy, who he, I don't even know if he can see. Like, I don't know if he can see the field or what's going on. But, I mean, in, in the, the analysis from Brian Greasy and Lewis Reddick is just terrible. It is so bad. It, it, I, I don't know. I was really fed up with the, the ESPN broadcast tonight. figure out if, if they like see the same angles we do because they were just saying stuff that just didn't really make sense to me like like on on plays that like they were going to review or something like that they they just weren't like it oh, was yeah. obvious it was one way and they just were like like oh, all right i wonder what or like you know this is probably gonna stand or something even though it totally wasn't or just, yeah. and, and last week to steve levy it was like third down 50 50 seconds left to go of the game or something like that and uh, i think it was the jets jets Patriots game 50, five zero seconds left of the game, and he's like, "Do you think this is four down territory, guys?" <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> it's just like I don't even know if he knows the game. I think he's just like a, one of those general analysts on ESPN. They're like, "All right, can you do football?" Yeah, I can do football. Yeah. Right, just, it reminds me. It reminds me of the clip. I think it was from last year, maybe a couple of years ago, of that Maction. I'm pretty sure it was Mac College Football, where the guy misses the field goal. Like the color commentator or the play-by-play guy, I think calls like he misses the field goal. And then the color commentator comes in and says, like, an absolute beauty 51-yard field goal made. <laughs> just, like, you can't mess that up. You, you just have to not be watching. It's so funny. He was looking down for sure. There's no way, there's no way around that. Yeah. I, That's I mean, awesome. It, it's ridiculous. When you're, like, scratching your head on, on a Monday night primetime game, it's supposed to be a, a well-done, you know, one of the best three broadcasts. I mean, that's what, he, uh, that's what the NFL is hoping for when they give the, the Thursday night game. And, and then the Sunday night game and the Monday night game, that should be the three best broadcasting booths that they, that they have. And 
I mean, Jim Nance and Tony Romo are incredible. Uh, the Sunday night guys, Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels, incredible broadcast. I mean, that it's it's like watching a completely different football game uh, when, when it's with those guys. And then you get, you know, the chumps at ESPN who, who just cannot seem to figure out how to put together a football game. Uh, here's a tip. Watch WCCO, uh, watch CBS, and and watch how uh, how they do it on Sunday Night Football with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth on NBC. I mean, that is the way to do it. Uh, yeah, not much else to say about ESPN. Fellas, anything else Vikings related here? I'm just looking through my notes. Uh, DJ Wanham, I thought he played a terrific game for the Vikings. Uh, I think he was a sixth or maybe a fifth or sixth round pick this year for us. And he's really coming into his own right now. Uh, obviously, with our guy uh, from Michigan State, Kenny Willickis, out at defensive line. The other rookie, DJ Wanham, getting a little bigger role this year. And I think he's played tremendously. Yeah, he's going to fit into a nice role come next season with him and Hunter, uh, two strong, quick, young guys uh, to go off at each defensive end. But, yeah, he's really filled the role uh, with Ngakwe leaving and Hunter being out. Um, it's nice to see a guy come in and, and shine, really. Uh, this game played great. And then against the Packers, too, knocking down Rodgers for that last-second throw. But, um, yeah, I guess the last thing I have to say about this game is um, it's it's going to be scary to see what the Vikings can do in a good way. Scary is probably the wrong word. It's going to be cool to see uh, what the Vikings can do if the defense keeps improving because uh, that means more time that our offense gets to be on the field and – we have another easy matchup against the Cowboys next weekend. They might have Andy Dalton back, but still, Cowboys are not a good team. And just another chance for um, the, the Vikings defense to gain more confidence, for the young players to get more experience, and hopefully to get some guys who have been injured, hope to get them healthy and back for next weekend. And I think when we do that, the Vikings offense is so hard to stop. With Delvin Cook and the one-two punch we have of Thielen and Jefferson, I mean, we easily could have scored – 33 points this game if we didn't turn over the ball with Rudolph fump, Rudolph's fumble and Thielen's uh, interception when mm-hmm. we're both driving down the field against the Bear, against the Bears defense. 14 more points. We're at 33 points against a great Bears defense in Chicago. That's pretty incredible. So I think it's just more to add on to and encouraging and an optimistic lookout for the Vikings fans that we have now. And I'm excited to see what we do and hopefully become one of the few teams to start one and five and make the playoffs, but it's just encouraging and I'm happy after uh, tonight's game. Yes, sir. Ways to go, but the next three weeks are looking pretty good. Cowboys, Panthers, Jaguars. Uh, so a very good chance to get to seven wins uh, with the next three weeks coming up. Uh, quick recap here on Gophers before we get into Ramble and Ricky. Uh, obviously Gophers played terrible. I mean, there was nothing really to talk about uh, from that Friday night game against Iowa 35, seven, Iowa takes it. No Randy on the call. Uh, BG, Zach, if you guys have anything quick to say, gopher-wise, I got nothing other than uh, rebuilding year. Don't even want to waste my breath. Horrible game. <laughs> I only have a few breaths left. I'm not going to waste mine either. Well, there you have it. Uh, let's go on to Ramblin' Ricky. And now to wrap up the show, Ramblin' Ricky's Tales of the Week. Ricky, what do you got for us this week? Hey guys, so we uh, got a um, little bit of a change here, change of pace. I don't know if our viewers are going to be up for this one, but I think it has to be the craziest story I've ever heard. You guys have heard me say that same exact sentence before, uh, but I believe this is actually the craziest one I've ever heard. So this is a guy named St. Padre P. 
Pio or St. Pio of Pietrelicina. It's a city in Italy. Um, and basically I'll just give a little background on him and then a story of his here. He's probably one of the most remarkable saints of the, of the 20th, uh, what century are we in? 21st? Yeah. 21st, I think. 21st. Okay. Yeah. He's, and he's uh, probably the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable saints of the 20th century. Um, he's born in Southern Italy in 1887, uh, by the name of Francisco Forgioni. Um, and it, it, the cool thing about it is there's so many stories that of, of these saints that are even more profound than this, but I think that, you know, having been born within, you know, 150 years of us and he passed away in the 1960s. And I, I think it just speaks volumes about how real the faith actually is. And a lot of times it's easy to pass out a lot of those Bible stories as fiction since this happened, like. 2000 years ago. Um, but St. Padre Pio is, you know, um, as he's more commonly known as his name was, he, I'll get into the story actually anyway. Um, but it helps bring kind of a new sense like reality into the picture, at least for me, just cause of how recent it is. But anyway, so at a young age, he was uh, able to communicate with Jesus and Mary. And at age 15, he joined the uh, Capuchin Friars. And that basically is a Catholic religious order focuses on missionary work, helps the poor. And, um, he changed his name to Pio after Pope Pius the, the first. Um, and many miracles can be attributed to him. And over his lifetime, there was a ton of miracles that he performed, um, which included uh, soul readings. He could like read your soul, like during confession. I don't not even get into that, but uh, you could just basically tell what you're thinking and feeling. Um, he unexplained healings, levitation, and even something called biolocation, which means that you're in two places at once. Um, and this is a story that I'll never be able to comprehend. And like I mentioned, there are many instances of these miracles. Um, so I would, if I were you guys, explore this guy. Um, take a look at him on your own time because it's never-ending stories. It's unbelievable. But this story occurred during World War II when much of Europe was war-torn in a small town in Italy where uh, Pio led a monastery, which is basically a place where monks gather and live and pray and perform works. Um, and it was a town called San Giovanni. And uh, he was in charge of the, the monastery there, and it was in danger of being bombed. But uh, Padre Pio promised the people that everyone would be okay in town and nothing was going to harm them. And this passage I'm about to read for you comes from a British writer and journalist in the 1940s who he's authored many works, um, including this one called Naples 44, which this comes out of. Um, and it's a diary of his that he kept while he was a sergeant in the British Army when he was stationed in southern Italy during World War II. So he wrote this. Hopefully this doesn't get too lengthy, but I think it's unbelievably interesting. There are many stories concerning Allied pilots who attempted to bomb San Giovanni, but were stopped by an apparition of a monk standing in the air with his arms outstretched. There are flyers who swore that they had sighted a figure in the sky, sometimes normal size, sometimes gigantic, usually in the form of a monk or a priest. The sightings were too frequent, and the reports came from too many sources to be totally discounted. Several people from Fugia, or Fugia, where thousands of people were killed in air raids, said that a bomb falling into a room where they huddled landed near a photograph of uh, Padre Pio. They claimed that when it exploded, it burst like a soap bubble. This event, which is to say the least unheard of, was directly witnessed by the general of the Italian air, uh, Aeronautica, uh, Bernardo Rossini, who at the time was a part of United Air Command. Um, each time that the pilots returned from their missions, General Rossini told me, they spoke of this fire that appeared in the sky and diverted the airplanes, making them turn back. Everyone laughed at these stories. But since the episodes kept reoccurring, the commanding general decided to intervene personally. 
he took command of a squadron of bombers to destroy a load of German war materials that was said to be right in San Giovanni. Up until that time, no one had ever succeeded in going in that direction because of the presence in the air of that mysterious phantasm which forced the airplanes back. Um, since, this had been, uh, since this had been happening for some time at the base, there was much apprehension. We were all curious to see the results of this operation. When the squadron returned, we went over to ask what had occurred. The American general was quite upset. He recounted that as soon as they arrived near the target, he and his pilots had seen rising up into the sky a figure of a monk with his hands held high. The bombs dropped all by themselves, falling in the woods, and the planes turned in retreat, without any intervention on the part of the pilots. That evening, the episode was the main topic of conversation. Everyone was wondering who was the specter which the airplanes mysteriously obeyed. Someone said to the commanding general at, that at San Giovanni there lived a priest, um, and that perhaps he was the very one responsible for diverting the planes. This general found this hard to believe, but as soon as it was possible, he wished to go there to find out. After the war, the general, accompanied by a, f a few pilots, arrived at the convent, which is where the monastery was at. As soon as he crossed the threshold of the sacristy, he found himself facing a number of friars, among whom he recognized immediately the one who had stopped his airplanes in midair. Padre Pio went up to meet him, and put it, putting his hand on his shoulders, he said to him, So it is you, the one who wished to do away with all of us. Astonished at seeing and hearing the friar, the general kneeled before him. Padre Pio had spoken um, in his usual Benevento dialect, and I assume that's some form of Italian or some, some other language, but the general was convinced that the priest had spoken in English. The two became friends. The general, who was a Protestant, converted to Catholicism. Wow. That is an incredible story, Rick. Isn't that unbelievable? Kind of just, I was kind of distracted halfway through that story because Cardell Patterson ran the kickoff back for a touchdown. But no yes, but that was a that was a great story. It reminded wow. me of the. Story. Thanks for breaking that news to me, BG. I'm not, I'm not sitting in the TV room right now. I cannot oh, I see the TV. So I was full. Yeah, I was fully into the story, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, that, I was going to say that, Ramblin' Ricky, that reminded me of the story somewhat similar. I don't know what the circumstances was, but I think like a town or a village were watching like the sun come up or something, and then they all heard something from God. Yes. Yep, Lady of Fatima uh, back in right around 1918 or something like that. Um, Mary appeared to three children in, in Portugal, I think, and basically to tell. And it, that, there's a long story behind that, but basically – Everyone look, was looking for a sign, and normally that, you know, God doesn't want people looking for signs, and because they they want He wants them to have faith their own. But Mary told the children to look look up in the sky at this certain point in time, and certain day, and seventy thousand people saw the sun. Um, this was back in yeah, I think nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen. Um, saw the sun zigzagging through the air and going just bananas in the air, and so. Beyond that, it's that's a whole another story in itself. But that's called Our Lady of Fatima. If you also want to look that up, but yeah, that does remind me of that too. Yeah, that maybe another uh, episode of Ramblin' Ricks. Yeah, tales right there. But yeah, that's a fantastic story of Padre Pio, uh, and yeah, that it, unbelievable. You said World War yeah. Two, is that right? Yep, yep. He was uh, actually he was enlisted in World War One, but he had tuberculosis, so he got a. Um, free pass, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then World War II, he was, yeah, they were in Italy and that probably wasn't a great place to be during World War II. I got you. Um, but one, yeah. one other quick thing, this is very quick. Um, and you should look up his stories because that was, that probably wasn't even the craziest one of him. He was just an unbelievable, miraculous man. And 
this is really, really cool. Um, in 1940, uh, 1947, a man by the name of uh, Father Carol uh, Wachala, I think his name was pronounced, um, he visited Padre Pio, and Father Wachala had just recently been ordained a priest, like the year before. And Padre Pio told him straight up that he would rise to the highest position of the church, and he'd never met him before. Um, and he told him that, and whatever. In 1978, this man, the Father Carol Wachtala, whatever, you, you change your name when you become a pope, mm-hmm. um, and you can also change like change your name if you're in a you're a brother or a, in positions of the church. Anyway, uh, that man became Pope John Paul II, who is arguably one of the greatest Catholic men or popes and saints in the church has ever seen. So I thought that was unbelievable. He's just, yeah, things you can't explain. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, absolutely incredible. Especially when you talk about the general walking in there and, you know, immediately recognizing him or just knowing somehow, yeah, that, from, you know, from the air. Yeah, yep. It's, it's just, it's hard to, hard to put into words. Certainly is. Well, thank you so much, Rick. That will do it for this week or for this episode. We'll be back later this week uh, with preview and picks for next week's games. See you guys all day. Another turning point of folks stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the wrist, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, that's right. I hope you have the time of your life. So take the photographs and still frames in your mind. Shelf and good up and good times. Tattoos of memories and dead skin on trial. For what it's worth, it was worth all the while. It's something unpredictable. In the end, that's right. I hope you have the time of your life. That was awesome, guys. That was awesome. That whistle part was really good. Thank you.